they can be had. Hello and welcome to episode 104 of Ribbon of Memes, a podcast where we interrogate films previously described by other adventurers as masterpieces. I am Nick, the uh, initially coy but eventually uh, strong heroine of the podcast, and I am joined as ever by Roger. I guess I'm a hard-bitten pilot and or bird wrangler. <laughs> is he um, uh, an order? We'll, we'll come on to that. Um, we are uh, watching adventure serials. Because nobody ever called either of these films masterpieces. Uh, maybe one of them, maybe. I don't <laughs> think they'd be right. <laughs> um, but no, maybe I, I one of them. Most, mostly uh, called um, second-rate Indiana Jones rip-offs. Well, that, we are basically watching Raiders knockoffs, um, if we're being uncharitable, or pulp I'm adventures. I'm going to argue with you on that, but yeah. <laughs> I, well, I think it <laughs> what the uncharitable bit or the Raiders no, knockoffs. No, no, I mean, they... they... <sighs> All right, so, yeah, th- this is so 1983's High Road to China. Yes. And 1984's Romance in the Stone. Well, I suppose I would say they were both called Raiders Knockoffs yeah, in I, their I time. I don't think they are. And in both cases, uh, the, the root story existed before Raiders came out. Indeed, before Raiders was made. I agree. Um, I do that think... That said, well, I do... Sorry. <laughs> I, I do think that while they were being made and while they were being mm. marketed... The, I'm, I'm quite certain the producers looked at Indy and said, all right, we want some of that money as well. I think if you look at, you know, the, the poster to Romancing the Stone, which is, um, not a scene that appears in the movie, but, um, is on the Wikipedia page if anyone wants to see it. It is, um, the character swinging across a chasm with a very kind of Indiana Jones vibe to it, or a very, probably it'd be fair to say a very pulp fiction vibe to it. Um, well, and I have they, seen they some... do swing across a chasm. They do, but Separately. not together. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, some of the posters of High Road to China are basically using the Indiana Jones font. So certainly, as marketing, um, mm. they were um, uh, they were influenced by Raiders. And while, while um, these were both moderately successful, they weren't hugely successful. And, and I think some of that may be people were came into them expecting. In more indie and not getting more indie. Yes, this was a rare, I suppose this is a few years after Raiders and either just before or contemporaneous with the Temple of Doom. I think it's just before, uh, Temple of Doom came out in 84, uh, May, Romancing the Stone in 84, March. So yeah, two, uh, two yeah. months before. Um, and I get, well, uh, we both like a bit of pulp adventure, um, mm. uh, in our role playing and our gaming. And, um, uh, it, and they are kind of larger than life stories and cliched, um, adventures. It's, I mean, should we define what a pulp adventure serial is? Cause it can mean it's one of those very broad definitions, a bit like noir. But what are we talking about with pulp? Pulp uh, adventure. It, it, it was sold in, sold as a, as a serialized story in the magazines. I mean, that's about all the, the definition of pulp. Yes. But, uh, I think th- this gets tricky because, I mean, as role players, we're both aware of pulp Cthulhu. Yes. Uh, and what that means is versus the st- fairly realistic, at least on the human side, of the standard game. This is saying you're larger than life, you're 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 strong, you're tough, um, you've got you know, weird weird abilities that are in some cases within the plausible human, in some cases definitely not, depending yes. on how far you want to take it. And the and the idea there is lot larger than life heroism. Hmm. Um, and that, that's one approach. Another approach is, well, one of these films sets it in the 1920s, like, um, as India's in the 30s. One, yes. One of them is contemporary. Um, exotic locations, usually a big part of it. And I would say sort of iconic characters in the sense that they're often, uh, recognizable. Broadly drawn. It's <laughs> a charitable way of me. Um, or, it depends on the story. I mean, a, a lot of these were serial, serialized, well, not only serialized stories, but a succession of stories with the same hero. And yes. in that sense, that's iconic characters in the sense Robin Laws means it, as in 
they don't really have a character growth from story to story. They they start off as, yeah, this is Doc Savage. You know how Doc Savage works. And I, I, there's part of me that does, well, a lot of me actually that does respect, you know, you don't, I know it's convention and you have, but you don't actually, to have a satisfying story, you don't actually have to have character development necessarily or, um, character growth from one end of the story to the other. Um, I, I, it I feel it depends been... on what you want to do with it. That's yes, the way. Yeah. Um, I mean, if, if the events are sufficiently exciting in themselves. Yes. Then, yeah. Uh, but both of these, I think, do have character growth because they, they were intended as standalone films. One of them did get, did get a sequel. Um, but it seems to be a widely despised sequel, included <laughs> um, by the actors. <laughs> yeah, um, which would be uh, The Jewel of the Nile for yeah. Romancing the Stone. Well, so, okay, having defined Pulp as best we can, it, it's a bit, I suppose, in a way, it's a bit like. Um, I think it def- would also be fair to say that um, they are basically about action. Yeah, you, you, are, you are not going to get a um, pulp hero who is a scientist unless he is also a scientist who is a champion boxer. <laughs> and he's well, going to be using the latter a lot more. I, to me, a, a pulp scientist um, is a uh, uh, he can do just about. He's basically a gadgeteer kind of character. Who he, can make anything or do anything. He, he's yeah, exactly. physically capable as well. Are you pulp hero? I mean, yes, you could have pulp scientists in pulp stories, oh, yeah, but I mean, they're, they're not going to be. Yes, Flash exactly. Uh, I, I grew up on when the BBC repeated the Flash Gordon film serials, so that that's my idea of. Yeah, they're going to be a, a generic, uh, not generic. Well, yes, generic. Um, every man who's uh, and usually man uh, who's good at punching people for hmm. the most part. Um, I, in a way, pulp is a pulp adventure because there are other types of pulp, I guess. But pulp adventure, it's a bit oh, yeah, like I mean, that. There were romance pulps. There were, mm. I mean, the, the proto noir stuff came out of pulps as well, for that matter. Yeah, so just but, but um, in a in a but way, these, these pulp are definitely adventure. both adventure. These are definitely pulp adventure, and um, the definition is some ways a bit like the definition of pornography. And that I, <laughs> I don't know quite what it is, but or, I know or, when I see it, or indeed religion. <laughs> um, yes, fair enough. So, shall we take them one at a time? Shall we start chronologically? Or? Yeah, so High Road to China uh, was a 1977 novel. Uh, I gather it's a pretty loose adaptation in that it basically keeps the names of some of the principal characters. It's fair to say neither of us have read the novel. Indeed. And um, probably not many other people have at this stage in uh human history anyway. But very broadly um, our heroine is an heiress and flapper living the high life uh, Yes. Some, somebody comes to find her in Istanbul and tells her that her father's business partner has moved to declare him dead because he hasn't been seen for a while There's somebody being the baddie teacher from Grange Hill um, <laughs> played by oh, Michael Sheard uh, Robert Morley's in this. Um, he looked very old, actually. But the, the baddie teacher uh, was, oh, Mr. Is it Mr. Bronson in Grange Hill? Anyway, he was, oh, he's it's... the guy who plays the valet. Um, who oh, okay. uh, I, I saw about half of one episode of Grange Hill. It really didn't work for me. So. Um, I, I, I remember I it. I my vague. 1980s kid card at this point. <laughs> um yeah, in fact, there were a lot of characters um, it cropped up in this that I recognised. Um, uh, but anyway, um, there are shenanigans, and, and if her father doesn't present himself uh, and prove he's alive... To within, an English law court. Yeah. Which, which to be fair, does include Hong Kong. So, uh, Yeah. Within 12 days, then, our poor uh, millionaire heiress is not going to be a millionaire heiress anymore. This is Eve Tozer. I, I like the fact that it's... he. Um, the, the the chap who comes comes to tell her this, Charlie, is it? Yes, yeah, that's the Michael Sheard um, yeah. character. Yes, um, he he specifically says, "Well, you know, you could just sell your jewellery and have enough money to live on for the rest of your life." Yeah, <laughs> and she's like, "Without my jewellery, it's not worth living." Well, no, no. To be, to be fair, she she says, "At the rate I spend money, I'd be broken a year anyway." <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I mean, this is, it's interesting because in, in one sense, it removes some of the tension, you know, she is, she is not going to be out on the street if this doesn't work. Mm. On the other hand, it's still clearly important to her. Yes, though there doesn't seem to be, at least at first, 
she's portrayed as a very vapid uh she's not interested in her dad so much as the money um and i i, I felt well, they, like they haven't um, been speaking for several years presumably by mutual agreement but you know, yes yeah i felt like that was a bit to me, as soon as that came up, I was like, oh, there's the character development for her. <laughs> you know, it just felt like, oh, yeah, she's going to come to care about her dad by the end of the film. Um, I, I think she does anyway, to be fair. She just doesn't make a big fuss about it. Um, she, I thought she was a really good um, uh, actor, actually, Bess yeah, Armstrong. Yeah, I, I have not seen Bess Armstrong before. And no, I'm she's really been impressed in... with her here. She didn't, she she didn't actually do up. that many things. So she's, she's still no. doing, getting a bit of work now, but, you know, she's in her 60s. But he I, is, she I thought is, she really worked. She's a similar kind of character to, well, not a similar character, but you know, she's um, a bit like Marion. She's introduced um, as very confident, quite dominant. She actually does most of the um, impressive flying feats, at least in the early parts of the film. Um, yeah, she, she has a splendid chin, a determined <laughs> chin. Yes, yeah. It's. Um, I was really impressed with her, and then our male. Um, Leads and both these films basically are the the tale of uh, a man and a woman um, resisting their urges. Um, we have Tom Selleck who tested for Raiders of the Lost Ark. In fact, was offered Indiana Jones. Yeah, so he just signed on to be the star of Magnum PI, mm. and that there was a, there was a clause in the contract, or the the timing, or something didn't work. So so he had to turn down Indy. Um, and then the filming of Magnum was delayed for six months, but they wouldn't let him out of the contract. That's right. That's a bit devastating, isn't it? It almost feels like this is a um, consolation prize. Well, for him. He, he did say in later years, you know, all his friends were saying, you know, claim you've broken your leg and you, and you, you can't be on, on ready to go on Magnum and then do Indy while, while, it, while it's healing. Well, yeah, um, yes. And, and he said, no, well, basically, no, I gave my promise. Um, so, yeah. well, that's, uh, that's where, I mean, he's, he's done all right for himself, Tom Selleck. Yeah, mean. this was his first significant film role. Um, I, from my memory, the main other thing I've seen him in is Runaway from the next year. So, I, I, well, I'm surprised. Kind of cyberpunk. It is, yeah, yeah. It's a bit naff, but also kind of fun, but that, that's for another time. <laughs> um, I'm surprised, actually, that uh, Indiana Jones wasn't offered to George Raft for him to turn down. But... <laughs> I think he may have been dead by that point. Okay, all right, that'll I mean, be probably right. probably wouldn't stop George Lucas, but... <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, so... This, this is, is one is of the a... reasons I wanted to look at this, because this is the closest I think we would, we would ever get to seeing the way Tom Selleck might have played Indy. There is, I believe there is a screen test of him in the hat, um, but I, uh, I I agree. He's he's very much the so he's Patrick O'Malley, a, a washed up drunk uh, pilot um, offering um, flying lessons to uh, all and sundry in are they in Istanbul at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make any particular difference, but yes, in theory, they're in Istanbul. <laughs> in theory, yes. We don't see much to make. That was, a, I feel like, um, other directors, oh, we haven't mentioned the director actually, High Road to China, is Brian G. Hutton, who I haven't heard of before or since. Uh, this was actually his last film. Uh, he was mostly uh, active a uh, couple of decades earlier. Uh, he did, did a lot of stuff in the 50s and early 60s. Okay. Inclu oh. And indeed, Where Eagles Dare in 68. He, he basically retired in 73. I do like Where Eagles Dare, I have to say. It's terrible. I'm almost afraid to watch it now, but. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he retired from making films in the 80s, um, and basically did real estate stuff. Um, uh, but then, um, Elliot Kastner need needed a director to replace Polanski on the first Deadly Sin with Frank Sinatra. So, Hey, yo. Hey, Brian, come, come and give me a hand on this. He stepped uh, in. And, and then, then he did uh, High Road to China as well. So this was, in fact, his last film, but, but he did live, you know, another 20 plus years. Oh, so he was actually a very experienced, um, director. Is, this is his, let's see, ninth film as director. It may have been the, the copy that I was, uh, watching, but it was very low. The opening of the film just looked a bit very, um, I don't know, it just felt a bit cheaper 
than some of the other films we've mm. been watching. And as you say, it's in Istanbul, but you wouldn't know it. Other directors would have spent a bit of time on the Hagia Sophia or, so, or the top carpet. Just shown you something of the sights of Istanbul. Um, now, you could argue that's um, overdone in films like uh, The Man Who Would Be King, <laughs> where we get an entire um, little um, film mess of uh, the earlier bits, or Casablanca. But uh, there wasn't really any sense of place and I feel like that slight flatness at the beginning of the film um, did give you an indication of how the rest of the film was going to go, except for... It, it, it had a slight air of made-for-TV about it. I mean, what, it, what, yes, what do we get? Yes, I think that's um, what I'm trying to say. Some sketches of Egyptian stuff, which has mm. no relevance to the film at all. Absolutely no bearing on it. And then we go straight into We Are Outside the... Um, Hotel in Istanbul, street scene. We've got about, what, 30, 40 extras? Yeah. I mean, but it could be a hotel anyway. If you told me this was a made-for-TV, I I might have believed you, at at least at this point. We'll come on to where um, it does excel cinematographically, I guess, Um, but it isn't isn't there. (laughs) Um, um, But it's interesting, because we we get Shane, the, the messenger, who is clearly... His job is to deliver the message, but it's interesting because the pretty much the first thing we see him do is somebody tries to assassinate him in his hotel room, and he he kills the other guy first. He's no stranger to a bit of violence. He's knocked about. Yeah, a bit. that that um, endeared me to the film quite a lot because it was very much set up like this kind of bookish um, accountant character is going to get murdered in his hotel room, mm-hmm. but no, he just he just flat out kills the guy sent to get him. Um, yeah, I, I was quite impressed with that, actually. It endeared me to the film quite and then, a lot. then we have Eve doing the original Charleston. Yes, uh, very well done. Um, and uh, Established as a, a flapper. And then we have Tom Selleck establishing his Patrick O'Malley as a, a washed-out drunk. He's very, very tired. Yeah, very emotional. Um, and then we, we rapidly move on to... Um, I, this this film very much subscribes to the um, if the action <laughs> if the action runs out a bit a guy comes through a door with a gun um, hmm. whenever whenever they're not sure what to do someone flies at them with a machine gun or, or drives towards them shooting at them so they have to take off in a hurry um, she offers him a ton of money they take a couple of gorgeous biplanes they are very nice um, planes um, and yeah, head off we we will have a Rogers Aviation corner but I thought we might. <laughs> I thought we might. Um, and so they're off on an adventure to find her dad before her money runs out. Um, they they straight... have a vague idea of where, where he is, but only quite a vague one. Yes, um, somewhere off to the uh, east. Um, so O'Malley very rapidly sobers up and basically never has a drink problem again for the entire rest of the film. Yeah, he takes a drink occasionally, but I don't think yeah. he... Yeah. Well, but not in a way an alcoholic takes drink yeah. <laughs> occasionally. Mm. Yeah, which yeah, I don't, don't entirely love that. But um, yeah, and we have these planes. These are gorgeous planes. The the aerial work in general is pretty good. But you know, some of the first stuff we have, which is in fact establishing that she is a competent pilot in her own right, because he is barely conscious after after the previous night's <laughs> bender. Yes. Um, a thing, thing they do a couple of times is uh, hammerhead, which is basically a salt on you. You go straight up, uh, kick over the rudder while while you still have enough upward speed to get some control authority. Oh, the, yeah. the aircraft pivots um, so that it's now facing down, and that, then you essentially fly back the way you came. Oh, I thought that was called an, an Immelman. Uh, um, no, the, with the Immelman you make a, a half loop and then roll out at the top. Okay, all right. Uh, okay. In, in this you deliberately stall and then come back down again. Um, okay. Which, which is actually quite challenging because if, if you leave the rudder authority too late, uh, then, then you can end up actually stalling and just going into a tail slide, which many aircraft really should not do because it's a complete pain to recover from if right. it's possible at all. Uh, yeah. So she's clearly quite a skilled pilot. And this is, I was going to say where the film excels. The aerial work is gorgeous. It really mm. does give you a sense of place and, um, periods. And just it's just lovely. There are some lovely aerial shots in this film. Yeah, and the rest of it is less great. <laughs> I, I enjoyed well, it. 
I enjoy, I have to say, I think I said to you um, off air that if I discovered this film as a kid on the TV years ago, I probably would have absolutely adored it. Um, one of the, I mean, they land in Afghanistan to discover a, um, uh, an Afghan warlord. Um, Played inevitably, I feel. Uh, by I, Brian I should explain that, that, that contractually we are obliged to call him Brian Blessed. <laughs> uh, uh, doing a fight again, Brian Blessed is an actual. He's never got to turn up and give you ten percent. Is he? <laughs> if he phones it in, it's still louder than anyone else. If he's really. unconscious, it'll be about one hundred and twenty. <laughs> That's right. Um, uh, I mean, he's not even a little bit waziri, but he's not the only bit of blackface in this film. Uh, yeah, so he is basically blacked up, or at least um, tanned up as a, an Afghan warlord, and um, uh, it's it is a very broad brush. Um, I have my problems with Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom with its uh, basically racism towards uh, Indians. Uh, this does feel like a very similar degree <laughs> of subtlety a... in the portrayal. It has really. Everyone's got their national character. He, he is sexist, and he is greedy, and he is sexist. Uh, the uh, the Chinese, the first Chinese man they meet is a wise old man who offers them um, <laughs> aphorisms. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he he at least is um, Robert Lee, who was you know at least a bit actually Chinese. Yeah. Well, yes, that's true. He was actually a Chinese gentleman. He born, that... born in Tianjin and he uh, studied, got a BA in history from Trinity Cambridge. Um, uh, yeah. Okay, well, that's um, uh, that doesn't come across in the performance, I must say. Um, <laughs> there is there's what I would call like oh, comedy misogyny in the um, two. Well, to some, I mean, I can see what they're trying to do, uh, which is that in order to get the respect of Brian Blessed. Yes. Um, our, our man Patrick has to display that he has control of his woman. Yes. And uh, hasn't had the chance to arrange this in advance with Eve. Yeah, I just feel like her response is, um, uh, more of a, a comic tick, like, oh, that hurt, rather than you utter shit, or, you know, something mm. like that, which, um, I feel like her character would probably be, um, Stronger about, but anyway, doesn't matter. It's it's. Um, I've been it's punched a... in the face by better men than you, etc. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, would have been. It would have been nice to have a better reaction. Um, and yeah, then there are. It's kind of a, a picaresque story as they go across. And Robert Morley does indeed crop up as the the villain of the piece. My who never is overplaying it. <laughs> um, he never really. I mean, he is basically there to be. Okay, let's send some more guys with guns at them. Yeah, he's in now, what three or four scenes. This, this was probably shot in one day with the second yes. unit. Yeah, uh, he doesn't look at his best. Um, and I mean, he carried. I was thinking this must be his last film, but he carried on working for like six or seven years after this, I think. Um, but it's uh, I, I, it almost made me a little sad to see him because he's he's wasted. Um, not in that way. Um, <laughs> I suspect but, this this may have been a matter of. Oh boy, we got Robert Morley, but we can only afford one filming day, and we can't actually get him to leave the UK to join the rest of the cast. <laughs> so we'll just and there's some pretty weak comedy uh, going on in his scenes. It doesn't really pan out. He, he, he's um, browbeating his valet slash factotum slash whatever, but nothing ever comes of it. Yeah, and he is—he's never—he never gets his comeuppance, and nothing. Really? Well, it's explained how he will get his comeuppance, but we don't yes. see it. Yeah, uh, we're told, not shown what happens. Um, and then we meet um, uh, Wilfred. Um, is it Wilfred Brimble? Well, eventually, um, Wilfred Brimley. Wilfred Brimley, who we, who is a ribbon of memes alumnus because he is in the thing mm -hmm. as um, Blair. And I recognised him immediately. I am quite good with faces, so despite um, his his head and his beard, um, uh, he, he was he is quite recognisable. Um, and, and it turns out what he what he's gone off to do is be be the great white saviour. Yeah, I, you know what he, you could he's, argue. He's found this village at the top of a hill, and uh, they they get raided by the bandits at the bottom of the hill, and, he, and he's helping them out by well, setting so up a rifle factory. As... I read this as he gets his jollies from war, but he can't do that, obviously, in civilised Western countries, because that's not okay. <laughs> so he goes to some, uh, according to the film, some kind of backwater where life is cheaper. 
um, and then he can enjoy himself there as a hero, which seems pretty unethical behaviour <laughs> to me. I, I think there are there are kinder ways of putting it, but I, I wouldn't say you're factually wrong there. But as you say, White Saver is, is a good way of putting it. He is obviously uh, the the wizard who brings all the the good stuff. Um, uh, Gunpowder, whiskey, syphilis, you know. <laughs> exactly. Smallpox, probably. Um, the, so th- in the meantime, throughout, we've lost our engineer. Again, um, a nice, nicely played um, Struts. He was called, which is a terrible name, <laughs> a terrible nickname for an engineer. Um, but uh, Jack Weston, I'm not familiar with the actor, but um, I liked the camaraderie between... Tom Selleck and Jack Weston. How do you, so during, yeah, during this, this whole... Is, this is one of his later roles. Um, oh boy, his last two films were Ishtar and Short Circuit 2. Uh, oh, goodness. But, I mean, he, he was in the original Thomas Crown Affair in a relatively minor role. Um, yeah, a few things. Well, I, I like the camaraderie between uh, Tom Selleck um, and, and him. One of the things I like is that it never really goes... Um, there's the one scene of uh, O'Malley's backstory. But, yeah, we never really learn how these guys got together. I mean, we can assume that it was because they were pilot and mechanic during the war. Yes. But it doesn't have to be laid out thuddingly for us. And I quite actually, speaking of... Yes, I agree um, that it's it's nice just to have that assumed. I did quite like that um, scene where Tom Seller... Basically, his cathartic moment of how he became a drunk presumably is that he was uh he was an ace in the war uh in the the first world war and by the end of the war the germans were just sending up kids in planes and he killed them too and he wasn't entirely happy about it which was i thought it was nicely played by tom Selleck. Mm. it's not quite the indianapolis scene but it but it had some it had its <laughs> moment um how do you feel about cuz a lot of this film i feel rests on the uh, the chemistry between uh, Bess and um, uh, sorry Eve and Patrick or well, O'Malley as he's called throughout. Well, that. here is this thing. I mean, it was a standard thing in films at the time and indeed before and since. But it's not a thing I love, which is they fight, they fight, they fight, and then suddenly they kiss. And it's almost literally played exactly like that here. And you can make that work, but it needs a bit of subtlety, a bit of you know, show show that you know I'm, I'm insulting you because I care, and I think you might have been killed, for example. And that yes. that really doesn't come through for me here. No, here it comes across as generally don't like or particularly respect each other very much. Um, until and suddenly then, they do. Until and, suddenly and the love they... theme swells on the soundtrack. And... Uh, uh, yeah, uh, the chemistry there is, is not very convincing, which is a shame because I think they're both good actors. Um, O'Malley yeah. is surprisingly not very punchy in that he doesn't do a lot of punching or physical stuff. Um, well, pretty much for... everybody here has guns. Yeah, so. exactly. So he wouldn't last very long if he did. Um, he does carry around um, the the machine gun from the top of the... Um, at one point, I thought he was going to turn around while running and fire off the machine gun from the top of the plane, which <laughs> seemed a bit unusual. But he does at least stop in a ditch and steady it on the ground. So, I, I was yeah, okay Lewis gone with the pan magazine. Yes, um, I thought. That. There, there's another element to that, uh, to, to the chemistry though. There's, there's a lot of him talking about her as if she were a child, or just treating her as that. And yes, I he calls thought... her um, Squirt. Is it Squirt? Yeah, and I, I do find it hard to cross over from that into romantic, but that may be me. I'd, I, well, I agree. I felt there was a creepy element to it. I felt, watching it, she looked very, very much younger than him, and I found that a bit creepy. She's she's not actually that much younger. She's I, When I checked it, she's like nine years younger, but um, hmm. I, I found it a little... He seems middle-aged, and she seems like a young woman, um... And it just seemed a bit creepy. To I me. mean, to some extent, it would make sense because you know he he has been in the war and had had his uh, self image as a heroic pilot completely destroyed, and yes. so on. I mean, it makes sense. It just doesn't quite work on screen for me. No, that the, the indefinable chemistry just is, isn't quite there, which is a shame because I think that really would have elevated the film because um, there's. There's lots going on to like about it. It is exciting and, and fun, and it doesn't dwell in locations too long. And before you get to ask any questions, they're off to somewhere else, and they're getting shot at again or being yeah. held at gunpoint again. And I've got to give it credit. Um, the the final flying sequence, 
that is Eve doing the flying, you know, while, while uh, O'Malley's standing around trying to sort out other things. I was surprised that basically he's she, just she like... She gets to do the big strafing the, the bad guys. Yeah, he gets a bit of action later um, when he sort of goes to rescue her. But yeah, she she actually <laughs> wins the battle for her dad. Um, uh, destroys those terrible see the planes get destroyed. Um, mm. But overall, and then the the kind of film just sort of stops at that point. Um, it turns <laughs> out she didn't need to find a dad after all. She was always going to be okay for some. Uh, she's got all the patents to all his inventions, so even though the baddie will have the company, she'll be all right because she'll still have. She'll still make all the money. So it turns out she didn't need to meet him. Turns out she she loves him after all, and she'd forgotten how wonderful he was, which conveniently until he <laughs> crops up on screen again. I'm, I'm just remembering. Um, we I think we talked briefly about what would have happened if Indy hadn't turned, shown up at all in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And <laughs> yes. in, in this case, you know, let, let, let us say that that initial assassination has happened. Um, uh, a, a few weeks later, there, there is a, a um, letter to her at the club in Istanbul saying, I'm terribly sorry, your father's been declared dead, but you're now even wealthier than you were. <laughs> yes, exactly. Here is a bottle so, of gin with compliments to the management. <laughs> Maybe they're emulating Raiders uh, even better than we thought. Um, I didn't hate this film i thought when it opened i was a bit dubious um i i don't think tom Selleck's a, a very uh, uh a good lead but i think that the absent chemistry spoiled it a bit he's mm. he's he's not got the most interesting character and he's really just kind of playing tom Selleck for the most part the thing that's where, where the structure falls down for me is that the the absence of a central villain i mean in theory yeah it's Robert Morley sitting in England telling people to send, send more bad guys. But, yeah. you know, there, there is the warlord and then there is the other guy and then there is the, the, um, the other warlord. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I agree. Uh, yes. Ant- Anthony Chin incidentally was Guyanese, but you know, he looks vaguely oriental. So that'll do right guys. <laughs> um, he's also in Raiders yeah. incidentally. There were a few, there were a few um, of the uh, characters I noticed um, from the Shanghai scene in Temple of Doom cropped up here as well. Um, <laughs> uh, presumably because you have a very limited pool of um, Asian actors. In, uh, when you're not blacking up your own white actors, then you have a very mm. limited pool of Asian actors. Um, there, yeah. there is a thing that I don't, I don't know whether this was deliberate, and if it was, it's showing a bit more subtlety uh, than, than, frankly, I want to give the script credit for. But... Um, when they're with the warlord, um, the the warlord's nephew, I think, has clearly fallen in love with her. Oh yes, yes. And when 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 they are escaping, uh, she she has been shooting people down left and right. He he's confronts her, and uh, she points the gun at him, and he just tears his shirt open. You know, all right, take the shot, and she can't. And, you know, that's fine in itself, and that it, it doesn't particularly signify anything. But then later on, she does the same thing to somebody else. Well, it doesn't tear her shirt open, because it, it, it's a film for public consumption. But, you know, she she does the same, all right, you know, shoot. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like the idea that she has picked that up from the experience she's had. Uh, Maybe I it was complete <laughs> I think you're correct. Uh, but, yeah, okay, fair point. It was, it's entirely pleasant and it washed over me as a fun pulp adventure. Um, and I, I would have, I would agree with you there were it not for the aviation. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, is that in a bad way? Now, first of all, tell me the photography at least of the aviation. How was that? Uh, well, they didn't use Clay Lacey. Okay. But that's fair enough. Uh, Clay Lacey was the guy you went to, I mean, any time from the 70s to the 90s, if, particularly if you wanted to f- film stuff flying fast. I mean, yes. uh, he, he was involved in some of the airport films, for example. Uh, you know, if, if you got sort of jet, jet speeds, you, you okay. want him, because he came up with this, uh, camera system such that you couldn't, you didn't have to do just looking down or just looking up, you could continuously pan across with, or sorry, tilt across with periscopes. Oh, cool. Okay, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you basically have a, a dome on the top and the bottom of the camera aircraft. Right. Um, 
But anyway, they didn't use him. I, I think because of the speeds of the aircraft, uh, they're probably using helicopters as the shooting platforms here, which is fair enough. Um, but the flying is gorgeous. The aircraft yes. are gorgeous. They're utterly the wrong aircraft, but they look as <laughs> I if, knew. Yeah, but they okay. look as if they could be right. And the, these are they uh, looked right to me. Stumper the Tongan SV fours. Okay. Um, which were. Oh, they, they built about a thousand of them in the end, um, but it first flew, <laughs> uh, in 1933. Oh. <laughs> and they, they, they only built about 35 of them before war broke out. And uh, the first big purchaser was in 47 from the Belgian Air Force. And that, no, it's basically a primary trainer, uh, flying on a, uh, gypsy major engine. Um, and it looks right because it's a two seat, Stagger wing biplane, and they basically have to be roughly that shape in order to work. It's got the fixed gear, it's got the uh, engine cowling at the front, it's got the slightly offset wings, and so on. Um, in the book, I, I gather they're Bristol F2Bs, which are you know, the Bristol Fighter, which is obviously oh, much yeah. more plausibly the sort of aircraft you would find in the back end of beyond in the 1920s because it was one of the big fighters of the First World War and after the war they were sold off. As we talked uh, a while back when we were dealing with the Whisper in Darkness about the Curtis Jenny, it's the, yes. pretty much the equivalent of that in the UK okay. and, and, and the Empire. Um, and they did actually get some replicas constructed, but it turned out they the replicas didn't work terribly well at high altitude, so they ended up just hiring... Um, something that would look more or less right. And that's, this is the thing. I, I, yes, I'm a perfectionist, but I will concede it looks more or less right. Oh, it certainly did to me, yeah. Uh, the, the German plane is actually another of the same model, which perhaps makes some... Oh, just painted differently. That would be why it looked very similar then. Um, but I, I think it would be fair to say this makes some, some of the, there is the one air-to-air battle. And I think it does make it a bit harder to pause when the planes are in something like silhouette. But, you know, shrug. Uh, which reminds me, the uh, the German pilot was an alumnus from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark as well. He was, um, uh, I can't remember. He's the he's the um, German general, uh, or the the German one who is uh, in charge of Belloc, um, Belloc, I should say, um, the one who says, uh, "I'm uncomfortable with the sort of this Jewish ritual." Are you sure it's necessary? Um, <laughs> but um, he doesn't do much in the uh, in this film other than get shot to death by O'Malley. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, all right. I, I will I will concede the, the one big problem for me with the aerial scenes, which, again, may not be as obvious if you're not, look, if you're not aware of the sort of thing that happens. Uh, when uh, Eve's plane has been damaged and she's making a forced landing, yes. uh, the smoke cans under the fuselage are extremely obvious that this is where the smoke is coming from, which is nowhere actually near the engine. Uh, right, that makes it yes, yeah. Which spoiled it a bit for me, but you know, it's it's not it's not terrible. I liked it. Yeah, it's, yeah, I, it's I, got I, its problems, as we've just been saying. Um, but yeah, I, I I had a good time. It was a grower on me. I, I was sure I uh, wasn't like it. I was sure this had bombed without a trace, which is not true. It did quite well, didn't it? Yeah, it did all right. Um, box office of twenty eight million against a budget of fifteen, which you know is not great, but. It's it's not um, a disaster. Uh, ironically, unlike the the latest Indiana Jones film, which apparently is a disaster, which is a shame because it is the third best Indiana Jones film, or the third worst, depending on <laughs> which way you look at it. Um, the the critical reception was pretty mediocre. You know, yeah, Roderick but gave it two stars, so it's lifeless. Um, various um, yeah, the Space Gamer reviewed this film. <laughs> Did they? Okay. Pleasant, harmly, non- harmless, non-sexy, non-violent, uninteresting film to take the grandparents to. I think non-sexy is the the problem in a way. They they just the charisma doesn't work for me, mm. uh, or the chemistry doesn't work for me. Um, yeah, uh, and, and that's the fundamental problem because really they're the the main characters. As you say, there isn't a strong villain to focus on. You've got a really. Um, Ship their, uh, ship their romance. You've got to want it to work. And I couldn't, well, I kind of knew it was going to work and I didn't really care about it. So <laughs> that, that, mm. that bit didn't work, but it was, I, I'm a sucker for the twenties. Um, I thought Eve, um, 
was a, a fun, strong character. I think I was more impressed with um, Bess Armstrong as easier yeah. than, than Tom Selleck, uh, to be fair. Yeah, me too. I mean, the the, the um, tough guy with, with, with some emotional flaws is very much a stock character of this sort of thing. And, yeah. all right, the, the, uh, the, the gal who can come through when it counts is also a bit of a stock character, but she was quite a lot rarer in film at this point. She so. was. She's uh, she's no Willie Scott, and she's uh, she's like uh, Marion. Um, I'm sorry to compare it to. Her. I I do wonder if comparing it to Raiders is a bit harsh. I'm not sure. The marketing department might have a lot to do, but it, I I don't know if it was really trying to be that kind of film particularly. But uh, it is trying to be a pulp adventure. Yeah, well, um, I think the marketing department would disagree with you. Uh, because it, it was released, at least in some markets, as Raiders of the End of the World. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, if you're going to compare yourself to, to um, a genuine masterpiece, as I think Raiders is, then you, 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 you're going to do better than this film. But I agree. I, I liked it more than I thought I would. I, I don't think it's a masterpiece, um, but it, it has a lot to like about it. Mm. I, I would certainly recommend watching it if you're interested in this sort of film. And particularly if you're an aviation fan of the period. Oh, yeah. That, 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 yeah. Reminded me a bit of Piece of Cake, actually, which also has some wonderful um, aviation in it. But that's more um, uh, 40s, 30s and 40s. OK. Well, shall te- we technically, this is mostly a 40s aviation film. It just it's set in the 1920s. <laughs> <laughs> um, shall anyway. we move on? Yeah. So uh, before we go on to our other film, I, I'd just like to mention in passing, as we're recording this, uh, the SAG-AFTRA and WGA strikes are continuing. Yes. Um we are, in fact, technically not strike-breaking, because film criticism is one of the exempt activities. Um, you know, oh, ma- thank goodness. Ma- making sequels or you know, things based on stuff that was made under the SAG or WGA rules, which is basically anything from Hollywood since about the 1930s, does count as strike-breaking, in effect. Not that either of us is likely to be seeking a career in film anytime soon, but yes, this, this is film criticism. We do We do support the strikes. We are, absolutely we do. It's, um, I, I think it's the, the, well, there's, I know there's many reasons for it, but the, the, um, the streaming model has, um, uh, problems when it comes to paying actors residuals and writers residuals. <laughs> anyway, moving so, on. Yeah, to, on to the next year. Yes, Romancing the Stone, which I always thought was a, a bad name for a film, but I suppose now I come to think of it, Raiders of the Lost Art when you break it down, <laughs> isn't necessarily <laughs> the best name for a film either. Yeah, and this is another one that I think even more, as as you say, the marketing made it look like we're ripping off Raiders. Uh, the screenplay was actually written in seventy nine, um, okay, by Dan Thomas. Bit a bit of a sad story there. Um, waitress in Malibu, and like basically every service personnel in California was working on a film career as well. Um, and Michael Douglas came into the restaurant where she was working, and she managed to get the script into his hands. And he liked it and basically took it up. Um, and That's then she worked this on... This isn't going to go couple... well, is it? That doesn't sound like a sad story. Well, she worked on a couple of other things, including the first draft for Indiana Jones 3, uh, oh. which wasn't used. Uh, it, it was more of a haunted house sort of story. Oh, um, I heard of that, yes. But she died in a car crash in October 85. Oh, so not long after Romancing the Stone came out. Yeah, and this is the only one of her scripts that ever actually got filmed. That is really sad. That is a huge shame. Um, Because it's so... Well, I remember this. I mean, I saw this at the time, not in the cinema, but I, I certainly saw it on VHS. And on TV, it then became a staple at Christmas alongside various other films. Um... And I certainly went into it, probably influenced by marketing, that this was mm. going to be a bit like Raiders. Um, and it was a bit like Raiders. A bit. <laughs> a bit. I was, I remember it being a big, uh, sort of world spanning adventure. Uh, I may have been conflating the sequel with it a bit, but I was a little surprised coming back to it. It's actually quite a small scale. It's more or less entirely set in Columbia. Mm. With some bookends um, in New York. Yes. So, yeah. So, so we we have a successful romance writer 
um, Kathleen Turner, who we haven't um, discussed before. Yeah, um, and and um, the the makeup department had the job of making Kathleen Turner look frumpy, which is essentially futile. But they gave it a go. <laughs> she does do a very good job of it, someone it, who is clearly absolutely gorgeous looking frumpy. It, it's no, very noticeable to me just how how the bo- the volume of her hair increases as the film goes on. <laughs> uh, that's true. Yeah, I think they have to literally tie it back and pin it down in the early scenes. But anyway. Um, so let's see, she's handed a letter uh, from her sister, whom she hasn't seen very much. Um, the sister's husband had re- has recently been murdered. Oh, the, the letter is actually from the, the from the dead husband. That's right, yes. Um, somebody ransacks her, her flat while she's out. Um, her sister then calls her and says, essentially, I've, well, tries not to say, but makes it clear that something bad is going on, but she has, she has been kidnapped. And um, you need to come to Cartagena. Bring the letter, and that's my ransom. Yes. So she does, and then she. Uh, it becomes clear that there are at least two factions of bad guys here. I, I will come back to this. Okay. Um, but the other faction of bad guys uh, diverts her onto the wrong bus, and it, shenanigans happen, basically. Yes, uh, the, the bus um, crashes, and um, uh, yeah, and then she meets um, Jack Colton. Now, I didn't remember much about this film, I have to remember, but weirdly enough, I perfectly remembered the, the names of the protagonists. I remember Joan <laughs> Wilder, I remember Jack Colton, um, and I remember the, the, the diamond, not the, not the diamond, presumably it's an emerald. Um, yeah. Uh, and I remember Danny DeVito saying, understatement of the year, assholes. That's, that's all yeah, I can remember going into. It's interesting it. to see Danny DeVito when he wasn't purely a figure of fun. Yes, I mean, he, he, he is... He, he is definitely the comic relief, but he's also menacing sometimes as well. Yes, he's allowed to have some agency and some kind of, oh, I've done a thing and it didn't completely fail. Um, we, we've seen him twice before in Riven of Memes, um, LA Confidential, of course. Yes. And I think it's an uncredited role in Last Action Hero as Whiskers the Cartoon Cat. <laughs> Is that right? Okay. Uh, and of course, we've seen Michael Douglas before in Traffic, though. He's, that was a few years later. Now, the, the thing that struck me where, Tom Selleck is obviously rugged, rugged and mature. Yes. And they're trying very hard to present Michael Douglas as a bouncy action hero. Um, I, was, I was getting Marty McFly vibes off him. That, that would come out the next year. Um, he's 39 here. <laughs> I agree. There's a lot of kind of woohoo and wee and this side. Now, he's also... He's doing wisecracks. And I don't think he quite pulls off the wisecracks. But in fact, the whole tone of comedy of the film just slightly misses me i think here mm, I, I i don't usually mention that because i have odd reactions to comedy anyway but yeah it, it doesn't doesn't hold together for me no people are wisecracking at moments now we talked about this a bit um in uh commando where we have you know the the heroine in there is kind of wisecracking at moments where i thought would perhaps um not be suitable, but somehow the comedy in Arnie films, and they often, there often are sort of comedic elements, even if it's him uh, murdering someone and then doing a quip. Um, mm. it, for some reason, that works better for me than the kind of comedy we have here, which is sort of fun banter, but it just feels very artificially constructed fun banter. Yeah, well, I mean, lo- looking at uh, Commando... I do still love Commando. Uh, it, what we've got is the contrast between, you know, ma- manly, uh, crime world, which Arnie is in and the bad guys are in. Yes. Compared with normal world, which Cindy is in. Yes. And we don't have quite the same thing here because Jack is, is presented as, I mean, sure, he's, he's a, um, guy who's been off on his own doing a vaguely, vaguely adventurous stuff but he he is definitely presented as a normal person who just wants to make a buck as opposed to uh zolo the chief villain who is definitely a part of crime world definitely well he's part of um oh it's a slight uh, frustration to me um it's it's part that it's set in Colombia and therefore you know laws are lax and um, we have corrupt officials and it, he, he is supposed to be the deputy chief of the secret police. 
Exactly, yeah. And, and it just... does does occur to me that if what he wanted to do was was um, stop her from going from the airport to the rendezvous, as the deputy chief of secret police, you ha- you have more tools available to you <laughs> than telling her to get on the wrong bus. Yes, uh, yeah, much less. That would be a much less pleasant film. I have to have. Yeah, but yeah, I felt it was a bit lazy Latin American uh, characterization, but. But there we are. Um, it, it is exotic for sure. We have deep jungle. Um, uh, pretty soon, as you say, shenanigans happen. Jack and Joan are. Um, the the short uh, version is everybody wants the map, or the or hmm. the uh, gem that the map leads to. Yes, so they decide, or Jack, uh, and it's not quite explicitly. St- well, I suppose it is because Danny DeVito's character says. Yes, sap. Um, at least I'm stealing it. He's trying to romance the stone out from under you, and I think, I think it's well played enough that it, I. What I like about um, the couple here is I do think there is genuine chemistry between the two. Mm. That despite me not quite liking the banter, I I believe her kind of falling for him, and I believe him basically trying to con her the whole time, which I think is what's happening, but also despite himself falling for her. It's a very cliched thing, but I think it's well played here and I believe it in a way that I just didn't with High Road to China. Yeah, key shot for me, um, once they have finally got out of danger, or so they think, and fallen into bed with each other, uh, yes. they, they are talking about, you know, we, shall we go and go and find the thing ourselves? Yes. Uh, so it's uh, to have a better bargaining chip. And he quietly slips the map out from <laughs> under the mattress where he's hidden it and drops it back in her bag. Yeah, that's a nice way when she's like, why haven't you stolen the map already? <laughs> he's not mm-hmm. like, oh, I have. Uh, yeah, I, see, I, I believe it. Um, it's, it's nicely done. And I, I find them likeable characters to spend um, a few hours with. I mean, he's not... Uh, he's, I, I don't know if he's quite a lovable rogue. You know, you don't quite get the measure of him particularly, but he. he yeah, I mean, when we meet him, he he's just spent some time gathering exotic birds for export and sale in the U.S. Shrug. Yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't, feel, I don't have a lot of sympathy with that, but yeah, we're no. clearly supposed to fight, regard this as good, honest work. <laughs> he's um, uh, it's interesting that the story is often told from Joan's perspective, and mm. she's kind of playing, and she does develop as a character, and again in a predictable way from this kind of shrinking violet who's hopeless romantic, um, looking for love. I mean, she never changed from that, but that she becomes, she has a strength to her, not like, not quite like um, uh, Evie from from the previous film we just talked about but it's um uh, well it's Kathleen Turner she's very nice to watch um in many ways she's a really good actor she's uh very pretty she's uh really good at playing vulnerable with a strength to her and she she's very good at acting with Michael Douglas I, I it's enjoyable yeah. to watch them I think the the one of the key bits for me in terms of the plot structure is you know, she she's been essentially dragged dragged along by Jack through these various perils. They they get to what is clearly the village of the drug dealers, <laughs> um, and think uh, you know Jack is trying trying to negotiate and things are not going well and t- until somebody he drops her name and oh Joan Wilder I have all your novels yeah <laughs> yeah it's a, well it's um. It's a cliche, but this is the earliest I've met it. it. It's, cert- it's certainly one I've used myself at various games. Uh, exactly. It would work perfect. I would definitely drop that in a, a Call of Cthulhu game, no question. Um, uh, yeah, it works. Um, again, I didn't find the whole, oh, I'm a comedy drug dealer thing work, work quite as well mm. <laughs> for me. But uh, again, it moves out on a fair old lick. And while you're thinking, oh, that doesn't work, um, then they move on to another thing. I, I like that. Uh, well, you were going to talk more about them being two uh, different. But we have the kidnappers, Danny DeVito and um, uh, his cousin Ira, um, and then we have Zola, um, the uh, the corrupt chief of police. I kind yeah. of like that the Danny DeVito sort of a wild card in this. You're not quite sure which way it's going to pan out. Yeah, um, well, he doesn't know at any given moment. He, he's obviously going to throw in with which. You know, I, I think we, we established up front that. 
he he is prepared to do a bit of antiquity smuggling, but he's not not really on board with this whole kidnapping and threatening bit, and he certainly doesn't want to get involved in murdering anybody. Yes, yeah, he's a, he's a baddie, but not too bad a baddie. Unlike Zola, who was established pretty early on to be um, a real baddie because he stabs a, a random guy in New York. Um, uh, yeah, I, I did get a certain feel of the unkillable supervillain about him, particularly in, in the final fight. Um, you know, not not only does he get smashed backwards, he gets smashed backwards, and now he's on fire, and he still comes back and <laughs> keeps fighting. This is after having his hand bitten off by a crocodile. Oh, well, you know, walk it off. Uh, <laughs> it, it is unfortunate that, that um, uh, this is Manuel Ojeda, uh, whom I don't think I've seen in... Uh, anything else but the, but the way he's made up here he's very much um the canonical vaguely latin american drug dealer yeah. slash pimp slash other low life it, it, he, he all, looks yeah. the way that guy always looks yes exactly yeah he's foreign and and bad and i i, I think because of that it kind of detracts from him as a villain he's he's too too one-dimensional baddie here i think so he's not I don't find him compelling or interesting or anything. He just he's just a baddie. Yeah, this is his best known English language role where he's done a lot of um telenovela work and uh, other stuff in 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 Spanish language. Mm. Um yeah, I must admit may, maybe it would have diluted things more. It, I, it would have been nice to have him trying to explain to his boss why he's throwing the resources of the secret police into this personal project. <laughs> yeah. Something, sounds, something sounds... like that, you know, where, so, so, you know, here, here is an actual honest policeman at the top of the system and, and this guy is corrupt, but he's not, he's not the only policeman we meet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That would be nice to have some uh, non-corrupt representation. Um, he feels a bit, um, of a major Strasser really, and that he's, uh, he's just a stereotypical baddie, uh, from, uh, Casablanca. Mm. Uh, and I suppose by that rationale, Danny DeVito is, um, Claude Rains. <laughs> yeah, maybe that works. Um, I liked it well enough that the following of the map, it doesn't really make any sense, and then they go into this cave with the mother's milk and they dig about in a puddle. It's, it, it doesn't, I remember it being a much, grander film but they're in a cave they find a huge gem in a puddle the thing that struck me watching that scene was you know you've obviously set this up with all the stalactites and so on what what you ought to have is the original cloth cloth wrapped bundle has now become calcified and you have to break it open yeah yeah no it's it's wrapped up in a a contemporaneous tacky statue or at least it might be 20 years old but not much more than that yeah, so how does... I don't understand what... It doesn't make any sense to so, me. So why is it an old map rather than... Yeah. Yes, exactly. And then, of course, Joan uses her novelist exclamation mark skill to work out that the gem will be inside the stone. Uh, in fact, in many ways, the, the whole plot is nonsensical. But I can't really... You know, Raiders of the Lost Ark doesn't make a lot of sense either. And there's certainly a lot of <laughs> plot holes to it. You're carried along with it, um, and it's it's all right. <laughs> it's all right. And then yeah, we have go, the climax. Go back and listen to episode 15 if, uh, for, for more of us talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, yes, yeah. And the, how do you feel about it? So this is Robert Zemeckis, who we have, um, uh, mm. who is also a Ribbon and Memes alumnus, because he uh, followed this film up with Back to the Future. Well, yeah, this... This was a film that everybody expected to be a complete flop. Um, and even viewing the, the dailies and the pre-edit stuff, um, was enough to get him fired from directing Cocoon, which he was working on after after this. So they hadn't released it, they just thought it would be a disaster. Um, but, and, and uh, as with, um, High Road to China, uh, the, the critics panned it at the time, um, you know, Time called it a Distaff Raiders ripoff. Um, Washington Post, fitfully thrilling and amusing, degenerate into a model, and so on. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, How did you feel about it? I liked it. I mean, again, I wasn't completely convinced by the romantic chemistry, but I do, I do think it worked better than in High Road. Yes. Um, 
Pauline Kale, favourite of the show, uh, said uh, Turner manages to dance like a woman who didn't know she could. Yeah, I think that's a really... She's very good, Pauline Kale. That's a really good way of putting it, that um, someone who doesn't... isn't Someone who looks like Kathleen Turner, she manages to make look like... She doesn't realise she looks like Kathleen Turner, which Mm. is impressive. It's... I mean... I think it is unfair, as with the other, to call it a Raiders rip-off. It is, yeah. but it is clearly in the pulp adventure tradition, even if it is set in the present day. So, definitely, um, and we have larger-than-life characters and stereotypical villains. Um, I liked it. I, I was, I, I would have been happy to see a sequel if that sequel was not <laughs> the sequel that we got, um, which I remember very little about as well, other than it's set in the Middle East, I think, or Cairo. Or yeah, and they they did not ask Diana Thomas back to write it, even though she was alive when they were talking about making it, uh, because she was she would have been too expensive. Um, there, there, are, there are stories from uh, Douglas and Turner uh, sitting on the floor of their hotel rooms uh, with various script drafts, Tossing pages back and forth to try to make a script that would work, that they, yes, could, that they could bear to play. I gather Kathleen Turner very nearly didn't come back because she hated the sequel so much. But they, they well, both both of them were contractually tied to it, and it, with big penalties if they didn't. Okay, so. I don't remember it being an absolutely terrible film, actually, Jewel in the Nile, Jewel of the Nile, but a bit of um, uh, I suppose a similar thing to. Remember the Brendan Fraser, The Mummy, which mm-hmm. seemed like, this is brilliant. Um, they can make a better one. They can keep going with this. And then they made a series of terrible sequels, and it just killed it off. Um, it felt like a similar thing. But I like this well enough. I probably, enjoy, well, I don't know, actually. When I come to think, I'm not sure which one I enjoyed more watching it. They both had similar impacts on me. The, this actually has a lower budget than High Road to China. It was only $10 million. Well, it really doesn't feel like it. I guess Robert Max is good at making it feel higher budget. Uh, and it brought in 115. Oh, so it, it did really so well. It, it yeah, did okay. very much better. Um, this feels to me, what would the term be, smoother. Um, yeah. It's very much doing the obvious thing whenever there yeah. is a choice of ways to go. I mean, that's... Not always yeah. a bad thing, but yeah, you know, it, it, it doesn't have particular lows, but it also doesn't have particular highs. Whereas for me, uh, High Road has the lows and the highs. That's a fair, but you know, contrast that, as you say, with the opening scene where Charlie just off someone who's coming to, <laughs> coming to kill him, um, and wrong foots you. And then we have Evie, who's a, a probably a, a more interesting character than Joan Wilder. I think it's. I think it's fair to say. I... Well, there there is this feeling, I mean, because uh, Joan is the only single woman we meet, it, um, there is this suggestion that uh, the single life is basically wrong and unhappy and unsatisfying. And to be fair, she feels that way as well, but she's the only person. Yes. So it's, it, it, yeah. it's like, you know, making the only gay character in your film the villain. Or the only Latin American um, authority figure, for instance. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, I uh, I agree with you. Romancing the Stones is kind of slicker, uh, but smoother is a really good way of putting it. All the rough edges have been smoothed off, including um, uh, all the really good bits and all the really bad bits. Um, yeah, I think it, it does fair. have some good moments. But... I, 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 I like both of them. I think I probably like them both equally, but... I feel of of the two, I agree with you. As I said before, if I discovered High Road to China when I was a kid, just like watching through different films, I probably would have really loved it. Um, uh, I, I get a certain amount of that even now. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I like both of them. Neither of them are, as we've talked about Raiders a lot. I mean, neither of them are as good. I don't think the mm. Raiders. I, I certainly won't claim either of these as a masterpiece, but I got enjoyment out of both of them. I, yeah, I do that's not, fair. To... I, I'm glad I spent the time to watch them. Um, so. It's interesting to see Tom Selleck in an indie-like role. Um, I still think Harrison Ford probably... Of the two of them, I, I do think uh, Michael Douglas probably does a better job of a charismatic hero, even though uh, I probably... I, I find his character a bit more irritating than um, <laughs> uh, Patrick O'Malley. Um, 
I I do think Indy has has endured for longer than these two, for a good reason really. That there is a there's sort of a, a a magical combination of actor and and story, not in all his films, but certainly in Raiders and some of the others that that just work really well. Yeah, there's there's been talk talk of a remake um, for years, including a TV series version. Of romancing the stone, yeah, probably not. Doesn't seem to have come to anything. <clears throat> I, well, I wouldn't be adverse seeing more pulp now that we seem to be, thank goodness, in the death throes of um, superhero films. <laughs> uh, mm. Now, as well as it's interesting as we speak, um, the current cinema, um, uh, the current cinema sensation is a combination of um, a toy-based film uh, on Barbie and the biopic of Robert Oppenheimer, which. Um, you wouldn't have predicted that, given the other stuff. I'm I'm not against it at all. Um, but um, that's some <laughs> impressive marketing acumen. To, I'm, I'm, I'm all for pulp action. I, I I do not really think you can have too many Nazis getting punched on screen. Exactly, which is why it's a shame that Indy Five uh, flopped as hard as it did because genuinely it's a it's a good film. And, and give, given the it. role of fashion uh, in filmmaking, I suspect we will we will see a, a, a downtrend. You know, or, or yeah, ten ten films that are that would have been made on the basis of Indy Five being a success will now not be made. Yes, that which is not not necessarily a bad thing. But now we'll get um, uh, a ton of more Mattel toys films instead, <laughs> 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 and biopics of increasingly obscure scientists. Um, oh, I could go for one of Feynman. Oh, fine. A, a quick, um, strong recommendation to read. Surely you're joking, Mister Feynman, that, which <laughs> yes, is indeed. fantastic. But... But, well, uh, I think yeah. that about wraps it up for this pulp adventure. So, We've reached our destination. We're bedraggled and dirty. Um, but we'll we probably still kiss, have... but, you know, off mic. Yeah, yeah. With it, we, well, we haven't been arguing enough. To... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, yeah, so the, these were definitely the, the two films that people seem to be talking about most when they said, you know, the indie clones. Yes. And I don't think either of them is. Um no, I agree so, that they're both a bit unfair on both of them. But uh, good fun, even so. Definitely. Definitely. We'll have to run an RPG along these lines at some point. I've done it before, I'll do it again. <laughs> <laughs>